This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from CapTimes Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two day event at the UW Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, we ask the question Is there a political center? Thanks to a polarized electoral landscape in the U.S., there are plenty who say that centrism has gone the way of the dinosaurs. However, the folks on this IDFS panel weren't so sure about that. The group included former U.S. Congressman Reed Ribble. But today we've got, we've got literally um, pre- a partisanship masquerading as principle. And it's totally, those are not the same things. Eloise Anderson, the chair emeritus of the Secretary's Innovation Group and the former head of the State Department of Children and Families. I don't see things really different. I just see things louder. Larry Larocco, the co-founder of Larocco and Associates and a former Idaho congressman. I think this constant churning that's going on with social media and the investigations and the, the trolling um, I think it's keeping good people um, out of office. Foley and Lardner, Director of Public Affairs, Scott Klug, moderated the talk. I'll let him take it from here. So, uh, millions of years ago, dinosaurs once roamed the world and disappeared, and once upon a time, centrists seemed to roam the world. And if you listen to a lot of other people, um, they're all but disappearing. Um, I'm not sure that's an accurate statement. I think a lot of us on this stage actually represent a, represents a bipartisan coalition of more centrist thinkers. Um, and so I'd like to get the perspectives from my panel. So, Reed, has it changed? I, 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 think, I think it's changed, but only, only a little bit in that the volume of the, of the extremes has gotten louder. So the middle, um, uh, which often carries less passion about politics, has gotten quieter. So as a result, you don't see or hear of them much. And let's face it, the, the middle is typically the folks that, that are willing to find the intersection between left and right and in terms of policy. And, and policy is boring. Uh, it's not as glamorous, it's not as fun as the extremes are. And, and so the media, which is looking uh, mainly for a lot of clickbait type of uh, activity and, and the entertainment that comes with it, I think gives a louder voice to the perimeters. And so it seems like the middle doesn't count. But I'll tell you when they do count. They count on Election Day because every candidate is seeking that independent or middle voter to be the swing in their elections. So they need cool. to embrace their power. So, Corey, in your role at Center Forward, um, talk about those elections and how they swing. Because you're, you're playing defense this time. Sure, yes. Two years ago, you are playing offense. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, 2018 really showed uh, the importance of the moderates. And I think what Reed is saying about the 
volume of the extremes sucking up the oxygen in the air is, is extraordinarily accurate. But if you look at the 2018 elections, it was moderates across the country who were on the Democratic side who were winning back the House for Democrats. And if you look at the caucuses, the ideological caucuses in Congress, the moderate Democrat caucuses, the New Democrats and the Blue Dogs make up well over 100 members of the caucus. So over 50%, whereas the Progressive Caucus is about 90 right now. So they're closer than ever in size, but the moderates are still winning out in the Democratic Party on the ideological caucus size. Again, the volume being so high, it's something that we don't often hear about. And I think looking at the elections, if you look at polling, you'll see that Voters across America, 44% of voters identify as moderate versus 24% who identify as liberal and 32% who identify as conservative. So it's still very much prevalent, just not as often heard. Larry, you were there back with me in the 90s. And uh, if you look, people will point to that as a golden era of centrists. Yeah. But w was it really a golden era, sort of the 80s and the 90s? Well, it wasn't bad. There were uh, the conservative Democrats from the South were uh, prominent, and um, uh, there w there weren't blue dogs at that time, and, and uh, all we were were sort of moderates that coalesced around various issues. For example, I was a deficit hawk when I went to Congress, and we had uh, uh, you know caucuses that were focused on the budget. Those things don't happen anymore. Um, but we worked across the aisle with a lot of uh, people, and, and the way I like to describe it with the conservative Democrats and moderate Democrats at that time is that we were sort of the lubrication between uh, the, the wings of the party at that time, and we were getting things done, I think, uh, at that point. I don't like to say, well, there were the good old days, because I think we have to really focus on what's happening right now. But right now, uh, there's more focus on the primary elections that members of Congress are interested in getting through. And that, in fact, they're not just interested, they're focused on it. Because once they get through the primary, given maybe the gerrymandering of the districts and the construction of the districts, then they have a, a, a smooth glide path to re-election. Um, uh, so there, there were those days when you could be a budget hawk, um, you could be uh, a strong supporter of the Second Amendment coming from a rural area, but you could be um, uh, really way left of center on social justice issues. And so it allowed you to sort of work the spectrum. Now it's becoming, um, you know, the, the scorecards are more ideologically driven, and people want to put you in a camp of being a rhino, Republican name only, or a, a Democrat name only. Now, Louise, you have a different experience because you were always in the executive branch, and the executive branch in some ways has to be bipartisan, doesn't it? Well, at least it has to be able to listen to other points of views other than the party point of view. They're going to get things done. And, if, and because you're the executive branch, you're, you're not really focused on the fight, the making of the sausage. You're really focused on what does the sausage look like and how we're going to fry it or bake it. Um, and then the, I think the other problem that, that I see over the years is that the, the right, I'm talking from a federal, look, looking at it the federal, is that I never thought that there was a place for center right, that the center right always had to give up, that the center left never accepted anything from the 
from the right. So it was, how much are you going to give me today? How much are you going to give me today? And I, when my, once when I look at it historically at the federal level, I see uh, the right sort of getting upset and going more extreme to be able to be heard. Uh, and then I watch the media get loud. But at the state level, I think it's different. Um, I think we have to play together more because we we're closer to the people and people want a different response from us. And the media is not always there making noise for us. And then if you're inside an administration, the, the legislatures, all of them have access to you. So you can't be closing the door to anybody. So you have to be more open, you have to be more balanced in what you do. And your job is to carry out the policies of the lawmakers. And if they don't like the policy, and they don't like what you're doing, and they should change it, and what they tend not to do is beat up on you. So I don't see things really different. I just see things louder. Uh, and maybe I've been around too long. That They all look the same. <laughs> well, Scott, I've, um, I've got a comment that, that I want to take off on uh, from what Eloise said, because uh, she said we've got to work together, and which is true. And, and, um, and also on what Carrie said about the elections is that um, we've had some moderates that were elected in the midterm elections, and, and uh, what we find is that uh, a lot of these members are focusing on local issues now. They're not dealing with the grand, um, you know, uh, revising government issues and, and, uh, and global issues so much as that they're paying attention to their districts more, and they're seeing that this is how you appeal to your constituents, is that if you're in the middle, if you're a moderate, the way to do it is to talk about uh, uh, your local issues. I mean, from the House perspective, we have 700,000 constituents. And um, I was noticing at a... Um, a race that flipped in Virginia, where uh, David Bratt was beat by uh, 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 Representative Spanberger, and she's a national security expert, and when I was reading up on her post-election, she was focused on dairy issues. So she was really starting to pay attention to her constituents and saw that that was the road to re-election. And she wasn't getting the headlines that AOC was getting and the squad, but she was paying attention to her district. You know, I was uh, uh, always surprised at how, when you would come home, how people really didn't talk much about what was going on in Washington, going to your point, Larry. It was all about what was happening in Northeast Wisconsin. And I'll never forget an interview I did with Andrea Mitchell when uh, John Boehner was kind of pushed out. All she wanted to talk about was the, the intrigue, the palace intrigue going on about re-electing a speaker and how the hard right was, was causing all this anxiety and problems. And I said, I said to her, Andrea, do you want to know what's going on in Green Bay right now? Moms and dads are getting up, thinking about watching their kids play soccer tonight, maybe thinking about where they're going to be at the orchestra concert or who they're going to get together with their friends. There's no one that is thinking about this except the media in Washington, D.C., but that becomes the message out there. M most Americans simply want government to work for them. And... Um, our job as policymakers was, in fact, to respond to the voices in our district and make sure government was working for them. I think that one of the big issues that I see is that a lot of Americans now want government out of their life. They want to be left alone. And in the world in which I was in, we intruded all the time. Uh, and so the balance between when to intrude and when to give space is a big issue, especially, if I think, in the executive side. 
and hopefully in the policy making side, but I don't see that on that side. Corey, about what are your experiences as chief of staff in terms of Reed's comments? I think it's I think it's 100% accurate. The biggest problem that I think uh, Washington and the media have is putting their blinders on, and you get in this bubble, and you hear what you want to hear, and the palace intrigue and the jockeying for um, power and position and uh, legislative wins. No one cares about that at home. They. You know, currently right now, all the talk in Washington, it's all about the big eye, impeachment. But when members go home, they're not hearing about impeachment. They're hearing about health care. They're hearing about the economy. They're hearing about the um, struggles with, you know, their kids' educations. It's, it's nothing about impeachment, but that's where so much of the conversation is spent in Washington and in the media. So, it, so but, but is it a bad thing if, well, I think we've got two premises going on here. One, that the center is somehow shrinking, which I think you have all rebutted, or at a minimum that the center doesn't get the attention that the other sides do. But is it a bad thing if the political parties are more sharply divided? Because doesn't it make it a clear ideological agenda and gives voters a clearer choice than sort of a muddled mess in the middle? Provide, I would say this, provided that. Once, when, once they achieve whatever power it is that they're seeking to achieve, they can actually function in the matters of government and, and ideas of shutting down the government. I'll never forget when we shut down the government in 2013, the hard right up in Green Bay was just screaming at me to shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. One of the very people who was the loudest of it called me three days later, couldn't get his, his FHA loan through, and was screaming at me, why wasn't the government working? And he was the very person screaming at me to shut it down. And this is, this is the yin and yang of it. But I do think that the difference between ideologies matters. But today we've got, we've got literally um, pre, a partisanship masquerading as principle. And it's totally, those are not the same things. And what we want is our parties to find principled compromises without compromising principle. And that's absolutely posi- possible to do. See, this is the first time in my life that I've actually heard my side of the fence be able to articulate an ideology. They've all mumbled through stuff or can't figure out how to say it. And I think they've been clearer and more assertive about it. And I think it has shocked the other side. It's like, what do you mean you've got something to say? What do you mean you can articulate this? And I think that's been a real challenge for the other side of the house is to hear an articulate right, actually, and an assertive right for the first time in a long time. I think it's perfectly fine to have ideological poles. The problem comes in when those um, ideologies divide you so much that you're not willing to compromise. I mean, in what marriage do you get 100% of what you want? It just doesn't happen. I mean, it would be great, but it's just not an option. And But your, your family can't function if, you know, the two people in a marriage are uh, not willing to bend and not willing to compromise. And the same problem exists on the far right and the far left. It's fine to have ideological differences, but you've got to be able to bend in order to make the government function for the people. And at the end of the day, my philosophy always is, if everybody walks away from the table a little bit disgruntled, you're probably doing the right thing. That's, you know, that's the banner of a good compromise and, and good good legislation. But using your marriage analogy, I think one of the things we have to do is learn how to listen to the other. And I don't see a lot of listening going on. I see a lot of screaming going on and standing up and performing uh, 
ballet dancers, musicians, but I don't see the listening to the other side. Which I think goes back to Larry's point about the um, the middle being sort of the go-between, the lube between the, the two polar sides, so. Yeah, I, um, to your point, or your question, Scott, I think um, not polarization, but partisanship is good because that's what makes our world tick, is that we have ideas and then we share them. Um, but on your marriage analogy, who gets everything they want? But there are people that walk away from the table uh, when they get 98% of what they want and they walk away from it because it's not 100%. And that's not the way the system is supposed to work. You're, you should be fighting for what uh, your district uh, needs and represents. You always have uh, the ability to vote no, but uh, you should fight for it. And if you get close to it, uh, that would work. But in today's world, too, uh, I, I don't know of a member of Congress, and Reed, I don't, you probably don't either, that would have a big ad campaign and said, uh, that says, I'm going to Washington to compromise. I mean, nobody likes that word compromise, right? Everybody says, I'm going to go fight, 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 fight for this and that. And, and, uh, but uh, if, if the system was really working right now, we would have an infrastructure bill. I think, because everybody agrees on infrastructure. We, we all know, whether it's in uh, uh, Reed's district or my district out in Idaho, we all have infrastructure issues, and everybody's agreed that that's very important, and it's good for the economy. Um, but we don't have an infrastructure bill. So is that a question of leadership, or is it a question of gridlock? Or um, it, It's tough to say, but I think it's a bellwether of what the problem is. You know, and the U.S. is not alone in this. I mean, look at the Brexit thing where this has been dragging on for months. And I meant you can't get a deal done no matter how hard you try, whether you compromise, don't compromise, go hard, go left. So I think there's a lesson that there's a lot of this going on around the world. So I want to bring another issue in here, and I'll tell you sort of a quick story from my own life. My dad was a diehard Republican in Milwaukee, but he always voted for Bill Proxmire. But once a year, Bill Proxmire would do something that would frustrate my dad, and he'd get mad, and he'd write a letter, and he'd write it out in longhand, and then give it to my poor, suffering mother, who had to type it on a manual typewriter. And then my dad would edit it again and hand it back to my mother, who'd retype it again, and put it in an envelope and seal it, but never put a stamp on it, because she wanted to make sure my dad put the stamp on it and carried it to the damn post office, because it was his letter. So fast forward now, seven days later, it shows up in Washington, D.C., where some, you know, 23-year-old first-year legislative assistant opens it up, just a generation before, you know, all of us were there, reads the letter, drafts a response, hands it to the legislative assistant, who handles it to the legislative director, who handles it to the chief of staff, which works its way down to the edits to the L.A., where now somebody hands the answer back to somebody else in the office who types it up on an electric typewriter, because in the 60s that was a fancy thing to do, it finally gets mailed. It shows up in my mailbox in, in uh, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, six weeks later, and my dad has no idea what the hell he was mad about in the first place because it was so long. So part of the problem today, I think, is there's no breathing room left in politics, right? Social media is instantaneous. Um, I didn't have my phone on or my iPad on the other day when I was watching the Democratic debate. I can only imagine that the first tweet, the first response, the first criticism came you know, 35 seconds into the debate. So how has social media changed the, the ways in Washington and the ways in state capitals? Well, it, it just seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it, it appears to the anonymity of it allows for this cynical, 
divisive, um, bitter language and uh, the, the, the uh, civil discourse that we're having right here today uh, couldn't happen in that arena because you get people jumping into the middle of it, insulting somebody. And, and that, while, while it's immediate and it, you, you see the passion, I think it is actually, it, it's actually taken the humanity out of governance. This is human, this intersection that's happening here today. Our discussion with real breathing people is human. The, the, the speed of media uh, has taken the humanity out of it. And I think that's been damaging. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's an applause line. I, uh, Scott and I um, have been fortunate enough uh, over the last two pres presidential elections to go abroad and talk about our political system and uh, what is happening every four years, and um, uh, mainly in Europe. And every time we go and we go as a Democrat and a Republican and we disagree, at the end of the session, generally people say, well, that wasn't like what I saw on CNN, on the International, and they were expecting an out-and-out -out brawl between uh, the two of us, and we just wouldn't take the bait because that isn't the way that uh, we operate. And um, so people are expecting this. I, I've sort of tuned out late-night TV, personally, in my own life, and, and um, MSNBC is sort of down on my list uh, at the moment. I just I can't take the constant churning. But what it does do, is it, it puts a, uh, this social media and the immediacy of it, which is Reed's point, um, casts a huge obligation on us as citizens to try and sift through all of this and come up with what is true, what is factual, what is the actual argument, rather than just the people that are appealing to us to our gut and, and uh, emotional reactions. And so that's a huge responsibility for the citizenry of the United States and all of us. And um, I'm not sure that we're handling it all that well right now because we're uh, divided into camps, but it's done for a purpose, I think, and the trolling and, and so forth. One thing that you asked what's changed, we didn't have fact checkers back in, in uh, the early 90s either. So. I, don't know that, I don't think that's made a difference with no, <laughs> fact checking well, today, but anyway, Corey. I think one of the things <laughs> that happens is that the, the politicians react to that little group of instigators and they don't kind of see the larger population. So this little crew, whoever they are, that pick are like little bullies in third grade. And the politicians are reacting the, exactly the way the third grade class act. And, to, and there's no adult to step in and kind of straighten this out. But in part, though, they react that way because the first person that got vitriolic actually got rewarded with campaign funds coming in 10 15 and $50 donations from all over America, and all of a sudden their campaign fund balloons by a million dollars because there's just enough people that, that love the fight, and then, then the next person has to respond so that they can, they can do the exact same thing, and bad behavior gets rewarded in this system, and, and that, that is up to us as citizens to stop. That's up to us. Corey? I think that overall it's just dangerous because as much as we often forget it, politicians, gentlemen, you are human, um, and not that you all forget this, but voters forget this. Politicians are human, 
elected officials are human. And think about in your own personal experience, if someone says something nice to you and compliments you, you say thank you and you go on about your day. Someone says something negative to you or attacks you, it needles in your brain and you can't let it go. Well, elected officials are the same way. They have the same human emotions, the same reactions to these sorts of things, and it's dangerous to have that immediate exchange. Look, there's an openness and a, and a positive exchange of information, and social media has a, has a lot of benefits to it as well. But in many instances, it has very negative repercussions to it. Eloise, I thought I saw you leaning over there. No, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about um, when Wisconsin had its um, recall, and there was no listening. I mean, no one could have this conversation at the time about the policy, because it was about the policy, but we made it about the person. And I was trying to figure out how do we quit making the policy about the person. I'm not sure the citizens can do that without some leadership from the policymakers. Um, and, and I'm not sure all the policymakers want to do that because it advantages them. So I, I think we're in a, a bad spiral right now. It, feel, it feels like we are in a spiral. And I, I believe that at the end of the day, what the American people want is a man or woman of character who will rise up through the rubble and actually lead this country to a much more civil, thoughtful, problem-solving place. That's what they're seeking at the end of the day. I think the American citizen also has to be willing to pay attention and invest and follow. You know, the, look, we're all busy. I have two kids, two boys, five and three. You know, life is, is all-consuming, and trying to dedicate time to educating ourselves on issues and listening to both sides of the issues or all four sides of the issues, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of people. But as Americans, it's our responsibility. And so there is, there is a definite um, role that American voters have to play. You can't have leaders without followers and, and who, are, who are willing to be invested. We, we don't want to be blind followers. We want to be educated followers. We want to be informed about what we're doing. Yeah, and I, I think this constant churning that's going on with social media and the investigations and the, the trolling, um, I think it's keeping good people um, out of office, and I fear that. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of people in 2018 that just sort of decided they were going to run for office. But I think over uh, the course of time that people, when they make the decision to seek national office and to climb into that thin air of national politics, I think they may hesitate. And don't forget that those decisions are not just the candidate's decision. It's a, it's a spouse's decision. It's a significant other's decision, the family decision. And if we're not uh, populating our Congress with good people that are dedicated to public public service, um, because it's so nasty, then um, our, I think our country suffers. Um, so I, I think we've got to turn the corner here at some point. Um, it was true that in 2016 that we were into an anti-establishment mode, both with Bernie Sanders and with uh, Donald Trump. And so that's a message in itself. There was a reset in 2018, as Kerry has mentioned, and now we have to see where it's going to go in 2020. But we are lucky in the United States where every two years we have a chance for a reset. And um, uh, that's different than in many countries. And I think we're very fortunate. But I fear that we're not getting uh, 
the best people uh, into office just because they're scared about running. So here's, well, a, here's a question from the audience. Um, go ahead, Eloise, finish your thought. See, I, I think that election said the American people don't want a saint. And then we came back and then beat the person up because they weren't a saint. But I think electing him saying, hey, you know, we're not looking for halos. We're looking for you to get a job done. And people didn't like that. They want a saint. So we got to make up our mind what we want to do here. We want a person who can drive the agenda or we want a saint. Saints may not necessarily give us what we want. So the question is about the primary season going on and the fact that basically says, is the primary system working to push candidates too far to the left or too far to the right in general elections? And does that lead to the lack of discourse from the center? Corey? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the challenges of running for president, uh, it's very difficult because the definition of moderate, as I mentioned before, Americans across the country, 44% identify as, as moderate. But the definition of moderate changes when you're in New York versus when you're in West Virginia. And so finding one person who can um, identify and, enter, and, and connect with people on those variety of spec on that, on that spectrum, moderate spectrum, is very difficult. And the discourse, I mean, watching the, watching the debates, the far left, it's where the donor base is, it's where the loud volume is, and in order to be the nominee to run against Donald Trump, you've got to get through the primary, and how are you going to turn out those votes uh, without going too far to the left, or do you have to go too far to the left and then overcorrect when you come back to the general? It's extraordinarily difficult, and the groundwork that you lay and the Nominate, the nominee that comes out of the primary election season is going to be very tricky when it comes to the general election because studies have shown that if you have someone on either side of the extremes as a nominee, that yes, you will turn out your base. Well, so let's take Bernie, Bernie Sanders as an example. I don't think there's any disagreement that he is on the far left spectrum of the Democratic primary candidates. Yes, he will turn out the base of the Democratic Party, but he will so inflame the far right base of the Republican Party that the turnout is going to be a net negative. So where does that leave the Democratic Party? Losing, and Donald Trump will be in for another four years. So, yes. Some of us might like that. Yes, and that, that's that's fine. Um, but if you're, you know, on the other side, yeah, if you're on the other side, it's they got to take that into consideration. I think it's always been that way. I think it will continue to be that way. Uh, primaries are about are about political parties and choosing their nominee for the party. And so, for the most part, I would say that Democrats aren't paying. Uh, uh, very close attention to Republican primaries, and Republicans aren't paying much attention to Democrat primaries, and what gets said inside the family doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, once you get into the general election, where both sides have to now actually pander to the independent voter, to that middle voter, you see the tone and tenor typically change. I think 20, uh, uh, 2018 was a bit of a, uh, 2016, I'm sorry, was a bit of a bellwether because we didn't actually see President Trump change. Uh, the same kind of uh, language he used in the in the primary race was the same language he used in the in the general election race, but he had put together an interesting coalition of uh, uh, anti trade unionists on the left with uh, hard right anti immigration uh, folks on the right 
and built a big enough coalition to win with that combination. And um, that's that's unique in American politics. And so, but I don't actually anticipate much change because primaries are about actually inflaming and generating the power in the base to win. And then everybody knows you have to move back a bit to the center to win the general election. But I, I would add that in some of these districts, which are hardcore left or hardcore right, um, there isn't a movement back to the center uh, because of the gerrymandering. Yeah, there's no need to. Um, uh, in Massachusetts, for example, the winner of the Markey-Kennedy race uh, uh, will be the senator. And uh, it's, it's a case out in Idaho, generally, uh, given the, the, the uh, politics of the state uh, now, that uh, if you get through the primary, generally, that's the way it's going to be. So um, we've seen the courts deal, uh, deal with the gerrymandering, and that's got to continue, I think, so that we can have these um, competitive races so that the middle um, actually plays plays a role, and so that after you may have to attract uh, your base that you move back or, or that you don't move so far. Um, I think my statistics are right that AOC in the Bronx, when she defeated Crowley, there were 16,000 votes that were cast in that primary. Well, there was nobody on the Republican side, so after she won her race, uh, their primary race, that essentially uh, put her in Congress with 16,000 votes, and a typical district is, as I mentioned earlier, 700,000. So um, is that representative of you know that particular district? It is left-leaning, but the turnout was very, very small. Do, do uh, you think it's gerrymandering, or do you think it's uh, we're seeing a natural outgrowth of the urban-rural divide? I, I think it's both, Reed. I think you, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the urban rurals because I think that's what has changed from uh, it, going back to Scott's first question. Uh, um, a lot of my colleagues on the de in the Democratic caucus in the early 90s were from the South. They're totally wiped out. And on the moderate side uh, with Republicans, they were along the eastern seaboard in Connecticut, New York. They're gone, you know. Um, but there is some gerrymandering that's gone on. I mean, I, I don't think we can deny voter suppression things. I mean, I, we have to work through these things. And um, as you know, I mean, we, we uh, uh, draw new districts every 10 years. And I think as a country, we should look at these um, uh, uh, commissions that draw the districts and make sure that they're balanced and it's not being done strictly for political reasons. And um, as we know, it's been become very scientific where you can go down to neighborhoods and, and uh, with the nano-targeting and uh, just with uh, publicly available data, you can determine what's going to happen in a neighborhood. And, and uh, some of these districts look like an octopus shaking hands with itself, you know, and, and that's wrong. We should have a community of interests. And uh, so those are issues that I think are uh, germane to the topic that we're discussing today. And actually, I was going to ask you the questions are. from the audience about gerrymandering. Corey, you want to talk about the implications? Oh, sorry, Eloise. No, I just said I don't think it's just an urban rule. I also think there's a suburban piece in there that tends to move things either way, and that may be more what we call independents and maybe what we call moderates, but they are the ones who I think determine which direction things are going to go. And it can get tricky. I mean, so if you look at my old district, because districts have changed around. When I was elected, there were nine members in the Wisconsin in the House. We're down to eight. So things have moved around a lot. And they've been moved around for political reasons. I mean, Paul Ryan's district uh, that he's now left and my old district, which Mark Pocan had, actually used to be very close politically. And at some point, Paul 
and Tammy Baldwin back in the day sat down over a beer and pizza, and Tammy said, I don't want this part of Jefferson County, and Paul said, I don't want this part of Rock County, and suddenly you now have two districts, the first and the second, where the first is probably now 55 or 56 percent Republican base, and the second, where I used to be in, is now probably, boy, probably nearly 60 percent a Democratic base. But when I was in office in the early 90s, you know, I sort of had three donuts. I had the city of Madison, where I used to joke the last Republican on campus was Teddy Roosevelt when he dedicated the Red Gym in 1903, <laughs> wherever it was. Um, and then you had the outlying areas, and again, 25 years ago, Sauk County, Columbia County, Iowa County were all 70% Republican. But what played the role in my district was the suburbs around the city of Madison, right? So you could lose the city of Madison and tie in Wanakee and DeForest and um, all the collar suburbs because there are actually more people in Dane County than in the city of Madison. And so talking about trying to keep three different groups of voters happy, you know, you'd go to a Madison school district and a kid would ask a question about guns and he'd ask it out of fear, right? Because he's worried about shootings in schools or shooting in his neighborhoods. You'd go out to Reedsville and somebody ask questions about guns. Well, only half the boys would be in the audience and some of the girls because they were out deer hunting with their father. It was just a very different cultural fix. Um, so that's, I mean, there's a tension there in between rural, urban, and suburban. I think Eloise is right. And I think if you look at those districts that move around, they're largely suburban districts, I think, to a large degree. The Democrats picked up seats last year in suburban Texas counties, in suburban California, um, California counties, yeah. um, and that, that was a big swing. And that's what you've got to watch, right, in two years from now? Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite redistricting stories is I was working in uh, Texas during the post-apocalyptic Tom DeLay redistricting situation, and there were stories going around the state about how Tom would walk into the office where they had all the maps laid out and all the software, and they were moving things around. And Charlie Stenholm was a 26-year incumbent Democrat congressman from West Texas. And he would come in and say, where's Charlie's district? What numbers do you have? And they're like, well, we've got it at 55% Republican. And they say, Tom would say, no, it needs to be more. He can win 55% Republican. And they come back and they say, we've got it at 62% Republican. He said, he can easily win 60% 60 Republican, so he can probably squeeze out 62% Republican district. Find a way to make it 70% Republican. And what you came out with is this long, Abilene, three and a half hours stretch all the way up to Lubbock, Texas, where he pitted two um, members of Congress, Congressman Randy Nagabauer and Congressman Charlie Stenholm. They put them in the same district, and it was a 70% district. He came back, and Tom said, 70%? Great. Run with it. Didn't matter that Abilene and Lubbock had very little in common, that they were so different. It was a complete politization, politicization. Got it. Very that political. <laughs> <laughs> um, very political approach to, um, to how they were doing the redistricting process. And the state legislators who are involved often have aspirations and how are they going to draw a district that's beneficial to them? How are, you know, it's not just the uh, members of Congress who are already in office. There are state legislators who, who have a significant voice in this. So it's very political, and redistricting reform is very high up on the, on the needs list in order to um, make sure that the center does not die out.
Eloise, let me ask you about the California experiment, though, because California changed the rules to try to fix this. Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'm still having a temper tantrum about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hard to tell when you have a temper tantrum, but go ahead. <laughs> well, it used to be that um, you'd have a party over here and a party over here, and whoever the top winners would go against each other. California decided that they didn't like that. What they wanted to do was have whoever the top three winners were would then go out, and it didn't really matter what party. Considering the people in California, you can know that one, two, and three usually are all Democrats, so it's basically killed off the Republican Party. And uh, it's become a one-party state. I think that is a danger to the country when you have one-party rule. And uh, I watch California very closely, because I'm always afraid that what happens in California, uh, especially in Berkeley, will then come to Madison. And then Madison will spew it out all over the Midwest because Madison is very good about sending the seeds out because we got a good ag school, so we know how to repopulate things. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I watch it very closely, but I think that how it happened, which is interesting, it happened by Republicans, or at least what they call themselves. It was Schwarzenegger and another Republican, I can't remember his name, who he was very angry that he wasn't doing better and he thought he was going to lose, and so therefore this is what they do. My concern out of this, and which I watch, is that we don't have a good sense of history. Uh, What wins today doesn't necessarily win tomorrow. And if we look back at our history, we can see that who was on top wasn't always on top. And I think that uh, Republicans had to be very clear because we haven't always been around. Democrats have been around a lot longer than us. So the chances of a party dying away and going are very easily if we don't be careful with what we want. And if what we want is going to help us today, it may not help us tomorrow. And I think that's what California is seeing. I'm I'm watching a a beautiful state. lose its way. That's an interesting point because uh, for years people have been talking about whether there would be an ascendant third party in the United States because uh, the parties have lost their way and and they're not catering to the independent. So I think there are a lot of reasons why uh, we haven't uh, uh, gravitated towards a a vibrant third party uh, in the country. but it still could happen, and uh, the parties could could suffer. I think we're strongest with a two-party system, but because there was such a strong anti-establishment feeling in, 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 uh, across the world, actually, I mean, Europe and England and, and here, um, that that's always a possibility. And uh, uh, Perot... Uh, tried to move it along, and, and uh, you know, we saw Howard Schultz sort of tinker with the idea that he was going to do this recently, and he abandoned the idea uh, because nobody wants to be part of uh, electing, uh, well, anyway, on the left, they don't want to be part of electing Donald Trump by siphoning off votes. Uh, you mentioned the coalition earlier, uh, uh, read which I, I thought you were absolutely correct on and there's a there's a phenomenon that we're dealing with right now in terms of trying to figure out where the votes are going in uh, 2020 and that is the 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 Obama Trump voters 
you know, who the heck are they? I mean, so what was driving, uh, you know, attracting them to Obama and then attracting them to, um, uh, to, to, to Trump? And, and where are they going to go in 2020? And what does it mean for the middle? Some of that was anti-Clinton, perhaps. And so um, the middle is, is broadening a little bit. I think uh, Trump continues to dominate Republicans in, in the polling uh, but in my reading, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the middle or the independents are growing slightly, where people identify themselves as independent. So that means, in my mind, that there's more of a chance for moderates to uh, come back on this scene. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. I mean, if you look at Trump, you could almost argue he's the first independent president. I mean, he's yeah, not. That's correct. I mean, I'm serious. He, he yeah. almost. He's not a Republican. He's not a Republican. Yeah, I mean, right. if you look at him, he, if he looks like a Republican, he might look like John Lindsay in New York and the mayor of New York in the 1960s who was very liberal. I mean, he's he's sort of takes things off the grocery shelf like he wants them. There's no consistency. So there's been a lot of Donald Trump questions, you and, might and add. Not, most of them not framed with applause, I might add. <laughs> so what does Donald Trump mean for Republican centrists, Reed? Uh, for Republican centrists, it depends. Um, and the reason I say it depends is because there are, there are, there are a lot of blue-collar workers that, that identify as, as Republican uh, that typically would take a more anti-trade policy mindset um, because they feel that it's been trade that has impacted manufacturing jobs in the U.S. I think that's a misidentification of what the problem is. We've, the jobs have, have left manufacturing not because of so much because of trade, but because of automation. And that's a good thing because productivity is so much better. In fact, U.S. manufacturing output is at among its highest levels historically with fewer workers. That's, that's the nature of it. However, he, he was able to grab that, that group of um, folks that are maybe just, just to the left of center and maybe just to the right of center that might not have liked some of the other things he was doing or said, but said, wow, if he's going to bring these jobs back, I'm all in. And look at where he won, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. These are big manufacturing states. And he was able to, to pull that group together with, with his uh, rhetoric on trade. Now, what he's done, actually, is very interesting because he, he really demonized uh, TPP but yet when he renegotiated NAFTA, he got out of the Canadians what the Canadians had agreed to in TPP, and now it's the greatest thing ever. And so it's kind of a fascinating approach that he's taken, and um, I think we're a little bit uh, in a kind of an anti-truth era uh, where, where truth doesn't matter as much as it used to. But I don't know. That, that makes Any sense Any Trump comments from my friends on the other side? Well, you had mentioned that he's pulling things off the shelf and so forth, and, and so he it's sort of the Trump party. I would just mention that he does it sometimes in the same day. He pulls stuff off, you know, so, I mean, he could change. And I think that's very chaotic uh, uh, for our allies, for for all of us to, to sort of deal with it. And, and everything is shrinking around a loyalist and family and so forth. So I don't know where this is all going to head. Uh, uh, 
but it, it's been mentioned that the 2018 elections were reset, and, and I think that was a uh, tremendous rebuke of, of his policies. After all, he was out uh, campaigning on immigration issues, uh, uh, rally after rally in 2018, and then he lost. Uh, so, but um, I must say, coming from Idaho, being in Wisconsin, I, th I mean, this is this is the center of the universe for in, in terms of what's going to happen in yeah, the breathe 2000s. Breathe the clean air, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, no. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I would say this. I think what's going to be interesting is whether or not um, President Trump's coalition can hold suburban women in Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Can, will those voters who voted for him uh, in the suburbs, particularly female voters, will they repeat? And I'm not sure that that's going to be the case, but I think, that's, I think, I think that suburban women have an extraordinary uh, amount of power right now. And that's, I think that's one of the tests going forward are, the, are Corey's members who represent suburban districts. But the question is, if the Democrats go too far left, will they push suburban women back? Yeah, right, exactly. You know, and some of the tax policies and other things, I think, become very um, controversial, I think, going forward. Um, I, but I it's good to be, I'm sorry, Alice, go ahead. I, I don't think that's a group looking at the Democrat debates that they're paying attention to. <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, and I don't think that Hillary Clinton paid very close no, attention to No, she to didn't. Uh, and I don't think um, many Republicans are paying very much attention to that group. And the and reason why I don't think so is because they're not loud. They're busy taking the kids here, doing that, uh, working. They're not, they're, they're not making a lot of noise. And that's going to be a problem. Yeah, but to Corey's point, ultimately, whoever wins the Democratic nomination is going to have to move to the center. And to the degree the party's taken positions in the primary that suburban voters won't like, it's going to complicate their life. They may not hear it now, Eloise, but surely they will in April and May of next year. Right. I mean, they're, they're, the Democratic primary candidates fully recognize that they've got to capture suburban white women. There's no doubt about that. It's a matter of when do they get their attention um, because there, you know, there is a, you know, who pays attention a year and a half out? We do. Um, and who pays attention after Labor Day next year? And so it's, it's sort of a it's long game, and you've got to figure out what your, what your audience and who your targets are over the course of the year and a half. Um, you know, 2016 was really interesting with Clinton and Trump because for a large swath of people, they were voting for what they felt was the lesser of two evils. They weren't excited about either candidate. They, um, they weren't thrilled with Clinton. They didn't love Trump, but at the end of the day, they defaulted to Trump. I think part of the calculus has got to be for 2018 for Democrats, if they uh, if they would like to win, is that they've got to put forth something that is safe, um, something that is stable, and I'm not talking mentally, I'm talking literally, you know, <laughs> stable. There's so much uncertainty and unease in uh, the, you know, minute-to-minute, -minute, you know, life these days uh, politically that there's, I think, voters are going to be looking for something that's a calm. They want to get back to their regular lives. They want to be able to hold, you know, hand over the, the legislating of the government um, to someone else to worry about. But right now, that's not, that's not doable. So I think they're going to be looking for something that is a, is a calming influence for the next but, four but years. But is grit, is grit, 
Ellie, sorry, I can't. It's I just think they also have to deal with the fact that they've established all the identity politics and they're going to have to deal with, am I losing the black vote? Um, so they've got two constituencies who don't have the same interests that they've got to figure out how to hold on to. Which two? Suburban women and black and the black vote. Okay. And how are they different? Well, I think that the way they've set the stage for blacks, blacks are asking to be uh, reimbursed with, with everybody else's money. So the whole reparations movement is a way to hold black vote inside the Democratic Party. And I don't know if suburban women are going to give up their income to, to that group over there. So I, I think we're setting up a fight it's an internal party fight, a family fight for you guys. We don't have that fight. We got a whole lot of other different fights. <laughs> but, that is, but that is not a fight we have, we have. I think one of the bigger fights that we have right now is, which I think John Bolton represents, in terms of how we view foreign policy, how we view how we go forward in the world with um, the different issues, how we deal with China, how we deal with North Korea, how we deal with the Middle East. And I think this issue with John Bolton kind of brings, in terms of our party, a big internal fight. And it's interesting on the Democratic side, when you look at the demographic breakout of how people self-identify on their spectrum of Democrats, liberal to you know moderate, the very progressive liberal section of folks are educated white women. And that's 92% of people who identify as liberal, educated white women. When you look at the spectrum of people who identify as moderate in the Democratic Party, it is African Americans, it is um, uh, white men, it's Latinos, um, it's, it's a cross-section of, uh, of the party who identify as moderates. So I think it's, it's an interesting breakdown when you look at it. One observation, Scott, that I just want to throw in here is the role of Nancy Pelosi in all of this. I mean, she's the quarterback for the Democratic caucus, so she's trying to keep a lead, lid on uh, impeachment, and, and she's trying to control the agenda. She's trying to um, uh, give more visibility to the moderate women uh, rather than the squad and AOC. And so she has her hands full, but uh, her success in doing that could have a, a dramatic impact on this cohort, which is the suburban, white, educated uh, female, which is uh, uh, moving dramatically away from uh, Trump and uh, really had a great impact on the 2018 midterm elections. So here's a, here's a number that's interesting. So Al Fromm, who I'm sure you know well, was a conservative blue dog Democrat who was in many ways the architect of the Clinton election in 92 when they set up the Democratic Leadership Council and a lot of the infrastructure around Democratic blue dogs. Al and I are on the board of Northwestern's Journalism School, so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on in the media and how it affects politics and how it affects people. But he's like a lot of people in politics, they're junkies. It's like talking to somebody who belongs to a rotisserie baseball league. It's, you know, every statistic in the world. If you take New York, California, and Massachusetts out of the equation, Donald Trump won the United States by almost 3.5 million votes. So back to the earlier conversation we had about rural, suburban, urban splits, the coasts are very different than the rest of the country is, which I only put that out there as an observation because he's desperately trying to figure out how Democrats win the next election and get Trump out of there. 
But let me go back to the beginning with an entirely different precedent. So the founders of our country made it very difficult to pass legislation. So isn't gridlock a good thing? Uh, for, yeah, for the most part, I think so, in, in that um, what, what, the, what the original system was set up was um, if, the bo if the two sides could agree, then you should go ahead and advance that policy. But if they couldn't agree, they should continue the debate until the American people made a decision on what side they wanted through the elections. And that system, for the most, of the most part, has worked. However, there's been a change now where the great voice of the American people, the wisdom of the crowd, is not being allowed to filter up through the committee process in Congress. Because leadership, the committee chairman and the leaders, in this case Nancy Pelosi prior to that, Paul Ryan and John Boehner, they controlled 100% of the agenda and they would defend their, their stopping legislation not on its merit, but simply because they didn't want members of Congress like me to have to take what they would call a difficult vote. And I will tell you, there is no such thing as a difficult vote in Congress, period. I do not buy that at all. If you are communicating with your citizens back home and letting them know why you're voting one way, and most importantly, if you're hearing what they're telling you, there is no such thing as a difficult vote. We, we, we live in a representative republic, and Congress should do what the American people want them to. So, So when I got elected in 90, one of the framing issues I had against Bob Kastemeyer, who'd been in 32 years away so defeated, was uh, Desert Storm. It was the first Gulf War. And so you may remember it was a really tough vote, sort of marching on which way it was going to break. And, and probably two hours before the vote, it was clear there were enough votes to authorize um, military action. So Newt Gingrich, who's the whip, asked to talk to me. And he said, you got a minute, Scott? And I said, sure. So we go sort of in the back wall near where the Republican cloakroom is. And he said, look, we're counting the votes. We think we sort of have this. I know what Madison was like in the 60s. And if you want to take a walk on this, take a walk on it, because we've got you covered. And I said, Newt, uh, prophetically, there'll become a time when you'll be mad at me about votes I'm going to take because of political reasons, but going to war is not one of them. So if I lose an election because of this, then I lose an election because of it. So, you know, later on over family and medical leave and a lot of other things, we had disagreements. But I want you to well, tell me the story again about sponsoring a Democratic bill and your interaction with... with the, in this case, it was Speaker Boehner. Um, I was uh, wanting to write a piece of legislation uh, with, a, with a, a gentleman I'd become friends with uh, on the other side of the aisle by the name of Kurt Schrader in, in Oregon. And I, he was in a district, he was a blue dog Democrat, Democrat, still is in Congress. He was in a district that Republicans were hoping to recapture. And I was specifically told not to co-sponsor legislation that he was writing or write a bill together because then he could go back to his district and actually campaign that he was working in a bipartisan fashion. And I was told not to do that. And I'm thinking, think of the irony of that moment. Don't do what is right because it'll be rewarded. I mean, that, that's, in essence, the message that I was given. The, the American people, where left and right intersect, where, where they actually uh, meet, is the exact place our founders intended for legislation to move from. And yet I was told not to do that for a political purpose. Now, I ignored it, and I, they got mad at me. And that's, that's how it goes. But, but, but the reality is that that, that was pervading 
uh, inside leadership, there was always a political edge to virtually everything you were trying to do. Well, that's, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago was at a fundraiser, a small golf event here, Reed, you should have been at, you would have had fun, with uh, a member of the Wisconsin delegation and a very senior Republican senator from Washington. And we were talking about stuff not moving. And he said, I'm so frustrated with McConnell because what McConnell wants to do is just run the clock out so members never have to take controversial votes. And this senator said, you know, the reason we got elected was to do stuff. So why, would, do, I, why do I want to stay in the Senate if we're not ever going to do anything? That, I mean, the whole point is to get an election, win the election, grab control, get your agenda executed. It's not to win an election, get control, run for the next election. And I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, Larry and I are back from the old days where, you know, we'd get elected and sworn in in January and your first, your first fundraiser would be June of that year, you know. I, I now get, because, you know, I'm in the, in the lobbying world in Washington for Foley and Lardner, and I will get fundraising invitations two days after the election. Yeah, before they're even sworn in. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's really common. It's just endemic of, of the system that we have that in, in many respects, politics is now trumping virtually everything. And I'll tell you, regular members of Congress are frustrated by it. They, they went there with the right heart. They actually went there from the left and right with the idea of serving the American people. And then they get there and, and they're stopped by leadership from actually governing. They want to take more votes. They want to have votes in committees. They want to have votes on the floor because they believe personally that they can defend them. They're just not allowed. I'm going to preface this comment with the fact that don't be mistaken that I'm defending Senator McConnell. But <laughs> you are from Kentucky, after all. I am from Kentucky. <laughs> um, but we also have to remember the way the founding farmers structured the House versus the Senate. The House is uh, meant to be responsive to the voters. That's why they have elections every two years. They're meant to, meant to be more reflective in a, in a real time. Real time back then is different than real time now, obviously. Um, but then the Senate, with their six-year terms, was intended to be um, more of the uh, educated, big thinkers, slow down the process a little bit. Um, and some of that has changed, but there were two very different functions intended for the two different chambers. The Senate was representative of the states, and we took that away. So that's the 17th just, Amendment. Yeah, so how away. we right. were structured now is not how the founding fathers had in mind, and the Senate was to represent the states. The Senate was the state house? That's right. The house was the people's house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah uh, uh, on Reed's point about the frustration of members, um, I think we should at least uh, acknowledge that there are uh, increasing retirements now with people just sort of saying, this isn't what I signed up for. I mean, it's, it's a very chaotic life, uh, uh, you know, no matter what anybody says about, you know, all the money and perks and all that stuff. Um, it, it's, it's a pretty disruptive life for your family and so forth. You really have to be pretty much focused on what your values are when you go there. Uh, but people are leaving for various reasons because it's just not the place that they thought it would be. And that's not good either. Um, and um, some of them are moderates, moderate Republicans heard from Texas, for example, who's leaving. And uh, he didn't want to face a corker or a flake um, situation where the president sort of went after him and uh, uh, demanded allegiance and so forth. So he just sort of uh, voted with his feet and, and left. And um, 
losing that historical uh, and institutional perspective is uh, not good for the institution. Uh, I think I'm, uh, I'm not speaking that you know, people should be there forever, but um, if there are good people who really believe in the system and then they just get frustrated and leave, then that's, that's uh, probably not a good thing. But he, uh, and he's exactly, speaking of Republican, exactly the kind of guy we want to hang on to. Former CIA officer, African-American, represented a Texas border town. I mean, could we get 40 more of those? So um, I want to read it. This is an interesting headline now. It says, The Disappearing Political Center, Congress, and the Incredible Shrinking Middle. One of the big stories of the upcoming congressional elections is not who is running, but who is quitting. Uh, most notably, retirements are speeding along the thinning of the political center, the incredible shrinking middle, as one senator calls it. This is for September 1st, 1996. So <laughs> maybe things really haven't changed that much. So um, having worked in uh, TV, the one thing I understand are time limits. So let me ask for sort of a minute closing from each person on your thoughts after this conversation. Reid? Yeah, I would, I would just say this. I think the American people, if they really want to restore good governance again, must recognize the amount of power they have. Members of Congress and any elected official or candidate is most fearful the day before the election and the most courageous the day after. And, and the reason they're fearful the day before is because for the first time in their existence, they've lost power. The only person that has power on election day are these people right here. And it's only if they choose to exercise that power and seize back what is your rightful inheritance as an American citizen. And that's what I would encourage the American people to do. I would say that, um, you know, most of the people in this audience here, not so much for us on the stage, are high information people when it comes to politics. And um, so you may know more than... Uh, the backgrounds of more than 20 members of Congress. and uh, But for most people in America, all they see are the members of Congress who are on TV and on the cable news shows and so forth, and they make up their mind about those. And so um, my thought is that uh, if we could think of those members who are not grabbing headlines and not trying to be uh, ideologues and, and uh, causing trouble, but every weekend they're going back to their district and holding town hall meetings and, and uh, really working to represent the 700,000 people or the uh, citizens in their states. Uh, take a look at those people and, and become informed about them and, and what they're doing because um, the, the ones that we see on the cable news shows uh, um, you know they're going to gravitate towards the red light and the and the bright lights and so forth. But uh, there are a lot of people that are really hard working out there, go home every weekend and and have made a sacrifice for public service to do the good work of of our country. So take a look at them as well. I would get, I would just in summary, I would say that uh, to answer the question of the overarching uh, panel is that the the center is not dead. Um, it is actually in a very robust position at the moment, even though it's hard for us to see it. Um, so don't lose hope. Um, you know, politics as the economy and everything else is an up and down sort of roller coaster, and there's going to be corrections and overcorrections and movement. Um, but, you know, hang in there. Um, I would agree with Larry in that if you haven't heard the name of a member of Congress before, 
they're probably got their head down doing the hard work. So, um, you know, show them support, check them out, uh, and don't just live in the space of what the what the media is presenting us at all the time. So. For me, not being a member of Congress, um, that's not ever on my mind, except when you guys <laughs> make stupid policy. But I, what I hope for for the republic is that we actually understand what the republic is all about. We pay attention to it. We get involved at the local level. Um, we teach our children uh, about our country, his, our country's history, because if we don't, we're going to do a lot of stupid things all over again. And uh, the other one is that we care, care about it. It's like a plant. If you don't water it, it don't grow. So I'm, I'm afraid for its death, the death of the republic, because the citizens don't pay attention. And so m my call is to start paying attention, be involved, and listen to the other side. So thanks uh, for paying attention this morning. We really appreciate it. There's a great success story coming up next. I was taking my guests who haven't spent much time in Madison, with the exception of Eloise, through town last night, coming down East Washington, and the sort of epic story is reflected in every one of the new apartment buildings and restaurants and music centers that's really changed the face of Madison and the way it operates. So um, thanks again. Have a, a great rest of the day, and we really appreciate your attention and comments. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.